0: Welcome to the Future of Protein Production podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come
1: good afternoon everybody and welcome to this future of protein production webinar sponsored by automata my name is nick bradley and i am the editor of protein production technology international the sister magazine to the future of protein production summit which takes place in 2023 on the 21st 22nd and 23rd of february it's especially pleasing to see so many of our readers online with us this afternoon you are all very welcome now putting cultured meat into consumers hands has a lot of challenges, especially in production processes where getting from R&D to production and from production to scale is fraught with pitfalls. Today we will be discussing the topic of scaling cultured meat, not a new topic of course, but one that has taken on a much greater level of significance in recent weeks, following the news that the Food and Drug Administration in the USA has approved the chicken product from upside foods as being safe to eat. We will naturally touch upon that today. Um, That is only one company, and it is only one product from that company. There are other hurdles to negotiate before US consumers see it on their plates, not least the USDA, but it's a very, very promising development, not just for upside foods, but for the global cultured meat sector. Now that we know animal agriculture is catastrophic for the environment, responsible for at least 14 to 15% of global GHGs, and it uses large quantities of land, resources, and energy. And we also know that the global population is increasing. Currently, it's around 8 billion and predicted to rise to somewhere in the region of 10 billion by 2050. With this ever-expanding global population and humanity's appetite for meat products not really showing any signs of wavering, the food industry is looking for ever more technologically advanced solutions to feed the world. Current rates of meat production from livestock are projected to contribute around 0.5 degrees centigrade of global temperature increase over the next century, while demand for meat is expected to grow a further 76% in just half that time. Uh, In light of this, there is substantial interest in developing alternative proteins within which cultured meats are just one of the solutions. So today we have with us a wonderful panel of experts who are tackling the very issues that cultured meat producers globally are facing. In this panel discussion, we will look at some of the key routes to production and scale, including the need for awareness of regulatory drivers and ways to maintain product quality as cultured protein startups continue to scale to meet demand drivers. Before we begin, though, just a little reminder that if you have any questions that you would like me to pose to our panelists, please paste them into the Q&A tab on the right-hand side of your screen or failing that into the live chat, and I will do my best to get the thoughts of today's guests for you. Um, If you could also provide your name, job title and company, that would be great. So that's the formalities out of the way. And for those of you following developments in the industry, we can see the use of cell culture is rapidly increasing, but the majority of cell culture operations are carried out manually, even though the core steps of maintaining cells are highly reproducible. Lab staff are expected to conduct repetitive tasks for hours every day and often have to come in outside of normal working hours to tend to their cells or adapt their biology to meet working weeks. This emphasis on manual steps limits both the throughput and the traceability of the workflow. We are now going to hear briefly from Jeff Dance from Automata, who will explain how, by introducing more automation into cell culture processes, labs can begin to meet the rapidly increasing demands for reliability and scalability in this scientific field. Jeff, it's over
2: to you. Thank you, Nick. And thank you to the organisers for inviting me today. So I work at Automata as an application scientist with a focus on cell culture. So a very brief introduction to Automata and what we think lab automation means. We are a manufacturer of robotic systems and a control and scheduling software to control this process, a process that we refer to as open integrated automation. When we assess a client process for automation, we look at every facet of their workflow, and look at specific equipment that they use or need for that process. We then design a workflow that takes those pieces and links them together in a way that it reduces or eliminates hands-on time for the lab team. So if we take a look at the at this slide on screen just now, I have an example of such a thing for you. So this is a cell culture process. And one of the key parts of, uh, is handling the cells at early stages and for instance, changing the media. So from left to right, we have an automated incubator. Then the liquid handling station that to exchange the growth media. Additionally, we have an automated centrifuge and automated microscope. And finally a plate sealer, automated freezer. And these last two were specific for a client project, but you can see how the, uh, individual steps that a scientist would take can be implemented into an automated process. The robotic arms can move between the different parts of the process. All of the equipment here is also fully accessible to the lab team for manual use. And this entire workstation would be housed within a clean air environment. Each workflow is tailored to the individual requirements and can change as the needs change.
1: Thank you, Jeff. That was short and sweet. Um, I actually have some uh, questions. Thank you for that outline about Sortometer and its offerings. Um, I know that you're working with labs uh, in cancer research, drug development, um, cell-based vaccine development and more. How do mammalian cell lines differ? What specifically <laughs> makes automating cell culture challenging?
2: Yeah, so one of the key things is is just how variable the different types of cells are. Um, some of the established cell lines for drug discovery are really robust and pretty easy to care for. But in the cultured meat sector, um, stem cells and progenitor cells have a lot of specific needs and can respond quite poorly to being mishandled. Um, one stem cell worker I spoke, to, I spoke with described some of the processes as being a kind of Goldilocks step. So not too little, not too much, but just right. And that can, that's quite subjective. And um, so learning how to translate that into something automatable is a challenge. Um, a lot of the processes that you see <clears throat> in cell labs are very manual and require a certain dexterity Um, Part of our challenge is to know when uh, to replicate a human movement and when to reconsider and redesign the step for a robot. And of course, for the cultured meat sector, we're talking about mammalian cell types that are currently under development that are not fully characterized and also non-mammalian cell types as well, such as chicken and fish. Right.
1: I mean, we we hear this in other industries about um, automation being introduced and uh, taking taking the jobs of... um we humans, but, uh, I guess this just frees up time for the humans in the lab to actually put their, put their efforts somewhere else more needed.
2: Uh, absolutely. Um, and in fact, we see this, uh, in, in a lot of places. So, I mean, as a company, we started our journey about seven years ago, um, as a general automation company. Um, and then, uh, in 2020, we pivoted to life sciences and healthcare. Um, and we had a major COVID project with the University of Southampton Healthcare Trust. Um, and we implemented testing at a scale of up to 100,000 lateral flow tests per day. And since then, we've been working on projects as diverse as genomic screening uh, through to mammalian cell culture. And this leads us directly to the alternative protein sector. But we've allowed um, for increases in sample throughput for a higher efficiency, for improved reproducibility. And of course, a decrease in the hands-off I a mean, hands-on time for the scientists means they can actually spend more time in thinking and planning and actually doing science. Um, and so those are, the, those are the kind of things, the advantages that, that automation would bring. Right.
1: I mean, how are your products um, from those other sectors paying dividends um, and deploying this technology in food tech? What benefits can this bring to the to the old protein sector or cultured meat as we're talking today?
2: So it's a lot of it is about... Um, uh, about improving uh or increasing the number of steps that can be done in a given amount of time um so there are you know if you have uh if you have a dozen things that need testing um that's relatively straightforward for for the lab team to do if you scale that up to ten thousand tests that need to be done either you need to hire a hundred times more people um or you need to radically rethink how you're going to go about assessing uh that enormous amount of uh, of of both scientific effort and data that comes with it um and so to be able to automate uh those processes to do them in parallel to do them on a longer workday, uh to do them overnight do them over weekends um you mentioned um earlier about uh, the need for sometimes to come in on the weekend um we've we've come across a number of uh of of labs where they will only initiate an experiment on a monday or tuesday because to an in- Initiate later in the week means that. Uh, oh, excuse me. Sorry. To, um, to initiate uh, later in the week means that um, they they would they can't do the process they need to do because it runs into the weekend and they don't have that capability. <clears throat> so to be able to automate and to be able to work um, over the weekend means that in fact that time is now uh, freed up and suddenly you gain. Uh, in every working week, you gain you know three or four extra days, which really is fabulous no, yeah,
1: all all mounts up. Now we've got um viewers here today I and mean, they're they're from organizations of all shapes and sizes, um startups from university labs all the way through to the you know the bigger end of the the sector there. How do you know uh, if automation is right for your lab?
2: yeah, so it's it's clear from our market research that the o- automation of laboratory processes <clears throat> in the biology and novel food sectors is really still in its infancy. A lot of times people are not sure that a process could even be automated. Um, and scientists love getting busy in the lab, but there comes a point where the repetitive nature of the work and the extent of the work leaves people with too little time to both get the work done and assess the results of their labors. Um, honestly, from, from what we've seen so far, the simple answer is that every lab could benefit from some form of automation. Um and this could be uh as simple as implementing uh, you know, a, an automated petting liquid handling station all the way through to the more uh process driven uh example that I gave at the uh, at the outset. Um and, and to be just a little bit salesy, if you'll excuse me, just give us a call and and let's see what might work for you.
1: No, no problem with that, no problem with that. Well, we're hearing from MOSA Meat Stakeholder Foods and Hoxton Farms shortly. I mean, what well, among the processes in these types of companies uh, would be suitable for automation, just putting it in that context of cultured meat? Yes,
2: yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and actually, I'd love to hear what the panellists think as well. Um, mm-hmm. But from, from what our contacts in the alternative protein sector have told us, the science of culturing cells for food is, is well established, of course, but the technological position is still very early stage. So there's a lot of testing and development required. For instance uh, testing of many hundreds or thousands of, of growth factors and nutrients in all combinations to optimize cell growth is required um and it's highly specific and custom process for every company and every cell type this is a huge amount of work yet it's very repetitive and it's very amenable to automation so and this rapid testing and prototyping is critical uh, for commercialization and then once scale for manufacturing production is achieved um, there's a significant and ongoing need for quality control and testing um and again, this step, it's especially if done in house is highly automatable um, mm-hmm. so and, and as well, clear and complete record keeping at this stage um is critical to meet local food regulatory requirements, and automation of q c testing will generate a complete and data secure document trail, yeah.
1: Well, we know that that jump from uh, R&D to production and go-to-market, it's quite big and there there's lots of smaller jumps along the way, I guess. Um, ultimately, your products make this transition smoother.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, I mean, it feels that the R&D phases and downstream QC are the most obvious places to implement laboratory automation. As the product transitions to the bioreactor phase, um, there is a switch to the complete and enclosed process environment of the bioreactor or fermenter. Um, but the needs of process developments in this interim phase will change. And there are interesting possibilities that we're exploring to assist in this early scale up, um, and assist the development team in optimizing their process. Again, though, having data and process monitored and linked by consistent control software has real value here. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you very much for that, Jeff. And, and thank you once again to Automata for sponsoring this webinar. Um, now I'm now going to come to each of our panelists individually. Um, To introduce themselves, and if as if by magic, hopefully they appear on the screen. Um, are they coming? Are they coming? There they are. Here they come. Here they come. Um, yes, yes, to our individual panelists to introduce yourselves just a brief rundown of who you are and what you do for your companies and where your company sits within this food tech revolution. So, Orit, um, I think we'll start with you, ladies. First,
3: thank you, thank you very much for the invitation. So, I'm Owen Goldman, and I am. uh, um a vast experience in uh, multi design biotechnologies, so especially in cell therapy. And now I'm uh, leading the biology team at Steck Foods, that that is based uh, in Israel in Rehobot.
1: Thank you very much for that. And Ed?
4: Thanks very much, Nick. Thanks for having me on the panel. Um, my, my background is probably different to most people in the space. Um, I'm a mathematician originally um, studied for a while and, and then went into machine learning in industry and have worked in, in startups for, for uh, a good few years. Um, co-founded Hoxton Farms back in 2020. Um, my co-founder Max, who's a synthetic biologist, um, and fundamentally we came together with this philosophy that the meat industry is, is broken. It's killing us and the planet. And on the other side, we've seen demand for plant-based meat has been soaring, which is great but we think the plant-based meat still isn't good enough yet. And that's because it's missing this one key ingredient, which is fat. And that's where we come in at Ox and Farms, we grow real animal fat without the animals, we're growing cultivated fat to make an ingredient for the plant-based meat industry.
1: Excellent. And, uh, Peter, the OG amongst, uh, the cultured meat fraternity.
5: <laughs> yeah. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me as well. Um, so I'm Peter, um, been involved with cultured meat for roughly 20 years now, um, and my background is actually in the meat industry, in the processed meat industry more specifically. Worked for some of the bigger companies in that field, uh, and while working there, got got sort of acquainted with uh, the concept of cultured meat, or vitro meat as it was initially called in the Netherlands. Um, yeah, and after a lot of back and forth, including being involved with uh, the presentation of a hamburger in 2013 in, in in London, which caused quite a bit of a buzz, um, ended up co-founding Mozambique with uh, with Mark Post, who was our CSO um, in 2016, and I now serve as the CEO of the of the company.
1: Excellent. Well, look, thank you very much for joining us all this afternoon. Um, Given the conversation we're about to have, it would be remiss of me not to mention the FDA approval of Upside uh, upside Foods chicken, um, which was a couple of weeks ago now. So this question is open to all of you. Um, What does it mean for the global cultured meat sector? How significant could it be? But also, uh, and importantly, I think, what doesn't it mean? There was a lot of excitement, justifiably so. um, But you would think from some of the reporting that this chicken product was going to be on our shelves by Christmas. That's simply not the case. So um, anyone want to come in first? Peter, should we go back to you? Sure, sure.
5: As it's been, as you mentioned, I think yourself, it's it's a very relevant uh, uh, announcement that the FDA made, um, and I think it's very positive for the for the field. I mean, we all differ a bit in how we approach the technology, which is you know, which is fine, uh, but ultimately, uh, indeed, FDA now seems to be clear on the safety of a product made with cultured animal cells, which is a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal, and and a great validation for the field and. You know, given the leading role of FDA um, in guiding such processes all over the place, um, it's it's also going to be helpful for future clearances in, in, in other geographies. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not a you know, a, a green light to put it in the shelves, as you said. Uh, now USDA are going to uh, do their thing, uh, which is when, when oversight comes in and, and potentially labeling and stuff like that. So I think nobody really knows how long it's going to take before that is going to happen, but. I think Upside themselves are hoping it's going to be somewhere next year. Brilliant. And Norit, is this, is this first domino important for stakeholder?
3: This is very important because uh, we think that the world is experiencing a food revolution and that the uh, FDA is committed to support innovations uh, also in the food uh, uh, sector. So all over the world. Uh, the regulators really looked uh, at the FDA, uh, the first FDA green light. It's not approval, but green light. And the fact that uh, the FDA gave, uh, gave this green light uh, for cultivated meat, uh, it will uh, drive the other countries uh, to follow the US. So uh, this milestone is very important.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, nature you're in a, a slightly different field um, cultivating. Fats, but uh is it something that you noticed over here in the uk
4: that development yeah definitely um on on our side the the regulatory side is is exactly the same um, as if we were wearing muscle so there's there's no difference um for us we are still kind of extremely excited to see this development in the us i i, I don't think we can um overestimate how big a at a moment this is for the entire industry so extremely exciting to, to see it
1: yeah. i mean we're not going to focus too heavily on regulations today but um we cannot escape the fact that everything revolves around what we can and cannot make and sell so from a regulatory standpoint singapore is the only country um to have approved a cultured meat product thus far uh, i think it's chicken bites from eat just um already on sale in that country um all right israel is a hub of food tech globally, and we know that Tel Aviv is home to a lab-grown meat restaurant, I think it's called The Chicken, um, which was opened by uh, Supermeat next to its production facility. Where is Israel currently with its regulations? I mean, you'd think, given the concentration of companies in that region, that Israel would be hot on the heels of Singapore. I mean, what are your hopes at stakeholder foods with regards to the regulations there, um, paving the way for your company to get your products onto shelves and into restaurants?
3: So, in general, in Israel, uh, the innovation has a huge importance, as uh, yeah, you can uh, see. For the uh, COVID virus, uh, Israel was the uh, first, one of the first, uh, to vaccinate the population. So, regarding the cultivated meat, uh, uh, it should be the same. Um, uh, Doctor Ziba Hamama, head of the Novel Food in Health Ministry is pushing really hard uh, for the cultivated meat uh, acceptance so there is really a lot of companies in the culture meat uh, field in Israel and uh, it's not only the ministry of health uh, that want to accelerate the regulation process but also the government and uh, we really hope uh, that soon Israel also uh, will approve uh one of the uh
1: projects yeah do you think you'll have your products on shelves or onto dinner plates in other countries first before israel
3: uh yes i really hope Well,
1: mm-hmm.
3: so, the uh, singapore and the usa are the first one
1: mm-hmm.
3: we need to uh, run
1: yeah um peter the eu has been um pretty slow to support its cultivated meat sector um despite huge players such as yourself, uh, Mos and Gourmet, etc. How challenging is it for you at Mosameet meat uh, to be trying to forge ahead when the regulatory landscape is so complex and uncertain?
5: Yeah, well, we're relatively speaking, it, it is quite challenging indeed in the, in the EU because, uh, well, it seems to be one of the lengthier processes to say the least. Um, The the core of the process, which is the safety assessment in in the case of the EU done by EFSA, is actually quite comparable to to what happens in other uh, geographies, I would say. Um, But where the EU is different, um, first of all, it's in the ability to, for companies like ourselves, to to interact on the the content level prior to submitting the dossier, something that, for instance, uh, FDA or or SFA, the Singaporean uh, Agency, are, are quite open to. Which obviously leads to a more efficient, more effective dossier and and less time spent answering questions afterwards.
4: Mm-hmm. Um,
5: and also the fact that while the EU is is one geography, uh, it's not one country, of course. So even with a with a positive safety advice by EFSA, it can take a long time to align all these countries towards legislation, in particular when the product at hand is is well, let's say, somewhat controversial from whatever angle.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. And um, finally to add, I guess the UK leaving the EU has presumably made it easier, uh, less red tape to advance cultured meat, or in your case, fat products. Um, what sort of appetite are you seeing from the, the UK government and what role has the UK got in the global cultured meat sector?
4: Yeah, so um, since Brexit, um, it's it's been interesting in the UK. Um, when we left the EU, we kind of adopted the same Regulations already exist in in the EU. The, the novel foods framework. And now, um, the the safety assessment that you need to go through in, in the UK um, looks very very similar to, to that in the EU. But as as Peter mentioned, that's that's one of the the challenges that exist in the, the EU. And the other challenges um, coordinating um, and convincing lots of different jurisdictions and um, countries to to approve this product finally. In the UK we don't have that problem. We have um one one government that we need to go to one health minister that um needs to to, to walk to the end of the process and um, and agree to approval. Uh, so that means that it's likely that the UK will move a little bit quicker than, than the EU. Um, but probably not as, as quick as um countries like the the US or, or Singapore that that have um really kind of place the trail here. Um mm-hmm. it, in terms of this question of, kind of what role the the UK has in the, the global sector, I think it a really important one. Um, we we have some uh, really important universities in in the UK and and really um, amazing stem cell research that that goes on here, and and that's all contri- contributed to um, uh, an amazing cultivated meat industry that's that's developing. Ultimately, I think um, similar to what Orit mentioned there, um, it's likely that companies in the uk will also look to the us or um singapore to be markets that that we sat in first yeah okay before
1: i come on to my next um topic just a reminder for everyone that there is a little q a tab there um on the right hand side of your screen so if you would like to pose a question please do um, i'm just going to give a quick one to orit here um how can israel collaborate with the gulf states um uh, this is matilda doji Um, She has heard it is difficult to establish a partnership with an Israeli company due to restrictions from Gulf states um, themselves.
3: Uh, I think there is uh, no problem, you know, Uh, we are uh, all uh, driven by uh, the novelty, the science, and uh, we are collaborating with everyone. Yeah,
1: well, it's a a global problem uh, uh, and it's going to take everyone around the globe to solve it, I guess. So, um, one thing we often forget in the discussion about feeding the future, Uh, is feeding the future more healthy foods. The future of food systems are gonna face an increasingly clear reality that a protein-rich diet is essential for good health, but the traditional meat products will not suffice to ensure the food supply supply chain's safety, sustainability, and equity on a global scale. An important consideration is achieving product attributes that ensure naturalness and nutritional value, if not better, as conventional meat products. So how, at your companies, um, are you ensuring that the products are nutritious compared to the conventional meat equivalents. And um, I guess we'll go to uh, Peter there, as you've been involved in this for some considerable time. Sure,
5: yeah, so this is, yeah, nutritional value is, is, is indeed relevant for consumer acceptance. And not just that, in some cases, for instance, in the EU, it's also relevant for your regulatory approval, because in the EU, you need to demonstrate, if you mimic a product, you need to demonstrate some level of, uh, let's say, nutritional equivalence with the product you are trying to replace. Um, so, uh, how we go about that in our case, uh, well, simply, well, I say simply, but very much between brackets by trying to stay as close as we can to the biology of tissue formation in the animal. So by, by coming as close as we can biologically to, to, to the animal in terms mm-hmm. of cell production, but also in terms of tissue, the actual tissue, so muscle uh, production, because that's where most of the nutritional value is, is created. Um, and this is about protein composition. It's about nutrients, uh, vitamins, etc., that are present. It's also about the fat composition. And uh, to that, I can add that the technology might also give you in the future um, opportunities to tune the fat composition to a point where it's actually healthier than, in our case, beef fat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we definitely take that into account. Yeah. Ed, that's probably a good point for you
1: to come back in.
4: Yeah. Um... I think it's a really exciting opportunity that that we have. We have kind of very fine-grained control over the the system that we're working in. We don't always fully understand the system because working with cells can be can be complicated, difficult. But we do have a huge amount of control that allows us to um, tune things like the fatty acid profile in, in the cells, um, and that leads to us, um, for example, balancing the. Um, Saturated unsaturated fatty acid ratio, and uh, introducing novel fatty acids like omega threes in the process, which are, um, which are um, healthier as well. So, I think there's a, a huge amount of potential that this technology has for um, not just replicating or achieving similar nutritional value to conventional meat products, but actually making them much much healthier. Um, the the other side of of this is thinking about the the safety aspect, not just the um, kind of health side and nutritional side. Um, the the process that we are all developing um, needs to be developed under extremely strict and sterile conditions. What that ultimately means is we don't have the, the same potential for bacterial contamination in the product that we make. Um, and there are um, some really exciting things coming out of the um, Actually, the approval of the the upside chicken um, the the other week, where they demonstrated the uh, the difference in the kind um, final safety of the the product that they make relative to conventional meat, um, <laughs> and I, I think that's one of these aspects of the the process that people don't focus on too much, but is is hugely important. <laughs> and now, it's at stakeholder foods.
3: So, and stakeholder food, I just want to give a brief a uh, uh, presentation obstacle to food because it's not only uh, uh, cultivated meat but uh, using our uh, property uh, 3D bioprinting uh, technology and advanced biology uh, we are developing uh, real meat from uh, ethically harvested cells uh, that means uh, of course it's uh, a crucial uh, question uh, that uh, we are uh, really deep in we invest a lot of uh, resources Uh, to evaluate uh, uh, and make sure that our products will provide healthy and nutritional value. Uh, We dedicated uh, teams uh, to check, uh, for example, the amino acid and the fatty acid profile and make sure that our product has the same nutritional value as the native tissue. Uh, But also with the 3D printing, uh, we can uh, also control uh, the ratio between uh, fat and muscle cells that we are uh, producing. So um, uh, we really uh, want to fit uh, what is happening uh, in the animal product uh, by making the cells here in the lab and uh, the cells, we are uh, ensuring that the cells, uh, we have a similar characteristic of the animal product.
1: We're going to go on to the challenges, um, in a moment. Um, I've got a quick question here for Jeff from, uh, uh, Legan Pythania. Um, so it's going back to your presentation here, Jeff, does the automated setup you showed, um, also facilitate live cell imaging or is it limited to fixed sample micro- microscopy?
2: That's from uh, uh, yeah, so it's a great th- question. So, uh, absolutely we can, uh, so we, we are not a, designer and manufacturer of individual instruments rather we we assemble uh, the pieces but so there are a number of manufacturers um who've made really uh really good automation friendly uh imaging automated imaging systems for imaging live cells so the idea would be that we could monitor cell growth over a period of many days uh take the cells out of the incubator image them put them back in the incubator and then image analysis would allow us to make a kind of a, a yes no uh a gated decision as to do we continue to grow them or do we do something else with the cells absolutely Mm -hmm. possible yes yeah excellent i mean some people are predicting that by as soon as 2030 so not far
1: away cultured meat could have reached price parity with traditionally farm meat um how we achieve that will come on to next but firstly do our panelists think that price parity by 2030 is actually realistic um but jeff we might as well carry on with you i know you're not actually in the food sector per se but sure
2: what you know of the sector's developments i mean so i, I was at a, a recent uh a conference uh in maastricht where uh, a lot of uh discussion was focused around the development of the uh, culture media and you know the input cost the ingredient costs and it's very clear that um you know when, when when i think of uh, of traditionally of cell culture um i think of using highly purified uh, uh you know reagents cell growth media um and but the ability to to use uh food grade uh components to do cell culture is going to bring in huge cost savings um which will have a tremendous impact on the uh the cost of goods and the uh the, the market price so i whilst i couldn't give up a time frame. Uh, I think it's reasonable to expect that price will become uh, potentially a, a parity, I would say yes.
1: Uh, Peter, you're next, price parity 2030.
5: I, th- I think it's doable. I mean, essentially to reach price parity, you need to do a lot of things. I mean, you need to have a lot of, a lot of aspects of your process uh, you need to control, but essentially you need to do three things, or you need to have three things in place, uh, basically. First of all, like Jeff said, you have to have really cheap food for your much, much cheaper than the pharmaceutical product that is typically used today in, in uh, mammalian cell culture. Um, then you need to have a process that that ensures the most efficient use of that food. So gives you an efficient conversion of that food into biomass, which means you have to have a very, very deep understanding of the metabolism of your cells and, and of your tissues in, in every stage of the process. And this, this actually touches on a couple of points that Jeff made. As well earlier because you know you need huge and huge amounts of analyses and interpretations of these analyses and da- data generation to 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 optimize this this part of your of your uh, uh, custom goods and then thirdly um, there are also investments involved with growing this field growing your 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 process and the investments involved in scale you must they must be. Justified by the return, it's as simple as that. So your bioreactors and your factories need to be within a certain price range, and typically, off-the-shelf bioreactors are probably too expensive for food use, and also some not necessarily, you know, the right technical solution. Um, and by the, way, by the way, one one aspect of the work, the actual work involved in the actual scaling, is so moving to a large system, which which uh, uh, maybe not everybody realizes. It's not just about b- buying extremely large shiny bioreactors it's it's in reality most of the work is done in smaller scale lab experiments that have to do with testing numerous of those media compositions and and identifying metabolites learning more of the biology of your cell types and what have you so a lot of that is 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 meant to go towards a large scale but it's actually done at a very small scale so to come back to your question yes i, I think by 2030 we can reach that point uh, although, it also depends on the development of, of adjacent industries like the feed industry. Mm-hmm. But I'm convinced, I'm really convinced that by then we will have the proof of scalability in place. Yeah. Yeah. I I with companies like,
1: uh, sorry, I guess that's where companies like Automata come in um, at, at that lab end. Um, all right. Before I come to you with that same question, we, we have a question from, from uh, Akshay Bat. Hi, all right. It looks like an interesting technology. How do you see 3D printing? uh then it says wrt i don't know what that means but about energy consumption and consumer acceptance and demand any insights on internal robust consumer research that you've done
3: so uh i think we uh uh we are not uh going to uh use the 3d printer and uh, uh make uh, uh... Uh, uh, to to, uh, damage the world uh, with all the consumption uh, and uh, the printer was built uh, really uh, uh, to stay, to have a sustainable company uh, and taking care of uh, electricity, gas, whatever uh, needs to be uh, uh, considered.
1: Okay, I'm going to quickly move on to the challenges. We, I mean, we've had a broad discussion about the current state of play. Um, so lots of technical challenges ahead in producing cultured meats at scale. Um, one of those is closely linked to the anticipated demand uh, and intensity of the production process. There is uh, a huge problem Um, as we don't really know for sure what that demand will be and although we won't focus too heavily at the moment on consumer acceptance here today whether consumers buy into these products is central um, to a discussion about scale Um, if we are to scale what are we scaling to Um, what do you expect the demand to be how much of a problem is that for for players in cultured meats? um might as well stay with you
3: so um i think uh we will need to uh, first educate people to know what is uh, cultivated meat. And uh, we already know from uh, uh, several uh, statistics that uh, at least 25% of people are aiming to test the cultivated meat. And we know that the first, uh, I know that we didn't want to enter to the um, to the customers, but uh, still, we we know that uh, uh, the the first people that will be able to test uh, this meat will be the uh, uh, Gen Z, uh, the population in more adverse countries. Uh, so I guess that we we we, we will have steps uh, for scaling up and uh, uh, reach what uh, um, uh, the the demand of the market.
4: <laughs> Ed, yeah, see you asked how much of a problem is this for cultivated meat companies? That how much of a problem is it that we um, that it's difficult to um, estimate demand for cultivated meat products? I don't think it's a problem at all. I think where we're going to get to on in terms of scale is where we need to get it to is is well beyond where any company is right now, um, <laughs> and to be able to really kind of feed the, the population with concentrated meat products we need to re redesign the way that we that we do bio manufacturing and turn into an industry that looks um something more similar to the the brewing industry um for for example and it's going to take a, a very very long time to to get there so um i don't think anticipating demand for for scale is too significant a problem for for companies at the moment um, i think that when you look at A company like um like just or good meat who now have um, a product approved in in singapore they're still only selling in a couple of restaurants there and that's because um although the demand is is there um it does take time to scale up these these processes um so i I don't think it's a it's a worry right now i think demand will be significant and for for a long long time demand will outstrip um supply of cultivated meat products And
1: the scale of manufacturing um, envisioned for um, cultured meat production is orders of magnitude above anything um, that has been contemplated previously in cell culture. In terms of scale, um, where are you guys at now yourselves um, in terms of production capacity? Uh, I guess that's a question for anybody, apart from Jeff.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Peter. Yeah, so, so uh, I refer a little bit to what I said earlier scale is not just about the size of the bioreactors i, I can say one or two things about that definitely less but it's also what comes out of them and at which cost so a lot of our work still focuses on um experiments to to optimize the process and and we will continue to do so for for a long time to bring down the the cost uh, those are typically small scale experiments and a lot a lot of them so as far as Bioreactor size comes. We are, as we speak, uh, installing equipment in the thousand liter scale, uh, which is not yet industrial scale, but somewhere in the middle, I would say. Uh, and uh, we're also looking ahead a little bit, but this is really preparatory uh, at a at a first industrial size facility with a with a capacity in the thousands of tons annually. but that's uh, something for uh, a number of years down the road. yeah. um all right.
3: So, yes, so I agree with Peter, so the production capacity is a highly important question, but more important is the production price. Uh, Really, we need to solve this problem. Our main focus now is to reduce the cost of the meat, uh, meaning reducing the cost of the media. So, (coughs) scaling up is a challenge, uh, but we know uh, how to uh, go over it. uh, um, because it's something that, for example, a uh, pharma company industry did in the past uh, with uh, sense. So the uh, most important is to have a stable process for cell suspension adaptation and to reduce uh, the cost of uh, the media. So at stakeholder food, uh, we are uh, there in a small quantity, and now we are working on the scaling up.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, i mean that takes us on to the solutions now that we've um, discussed some of those technical challenges. i mean you mentioned that there. cell culture media is the main cost driver for cultured meat products and attributes something in the region of 50 to 80 percent of all costs presently for startup companies it's very difficult uh it's a difficult process to develop their own cell culture media for their specific cells or cell lines and um, there's a lot of know-how in research and production needed Um so this is a question i guess to, to all of you could i come to each of you now um to find out how much of a challenge this has been for you um, and how you are working towards uh, a solution with your partners or otherwise to reduce the costs in this area, Peter?
5: Yeah, sure. Um, it is a big challenge indeed. One of one of the biggest, uh, I, I guess it's fair to say. Um, first of all, if you look at the basal media, so the the, the bulk of the media in terms of volume, all the nutric- nutritional stuff that's in there, uh, we we hooked up with the feed company, not with the pharmaceutical company. To, to be able to use their supply chain experience uh, their 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 material knowledge uh, their processing capabilities to make the shift from pharma to food or even to feed. so that's an ongoing process. Um, and it's that's definitely something you need to to come close to to price parity mm-hmm. well for your basal media. Then there's a bunch of well, I don't know, not really a bunch but a much smaller part of bioactive components essentially replacements of serum, which we don't use anymore. And I think a lot of us don't use serum anymore. Um, today they are the most pricey elements of the growth media and it differs a little bit per molecule. Some of them, uh, actually most of them probably will be cheap enough in the future when they're produced at scale with just existing technologies, um, combined with a food regime. And some of them will require other solutions, alternatives from, from natural sources, um, which we're all working on as well. So we're working on all those levels, and uh, yeah, I, I would say the difficulty here is not so much the depth of the scientific problem, but in the sheer amount of experiments that need to be done. I'm sounding like a advertisement for Jeff here, but <laughs> a <lot> of experiments. What's the pre on those variables? Now, yeah, it's it's true. I mean, if you look at the, the number of variables that need to be you know taken into account here, it's it's it exceeds what what you can humanly do.
1: Uh-huh. Okay. Um, in the case of can I, can I jump in there?
4: yeah, no, sure uh, Go for a... so, so just to talk about how how we see things at and Vamps um completely agree with what Peter was saying there on this um search space being extremely large. um essentially what what we have is an optimization problem where we're trying to um optimize a, a set of different conditions to ultimately lead to um the the cheapest media that gives us the best cell growth. Um, what, what we do at Arx and Bonds is use, um, mathematical op- optimization and machine learning techniques to, to search that space in, in clever ways um, to try to reduce the number of experiments that we need to do in order to, to find these optimal results. Um, completely agree with, with Peter that there are still, um, too many experiments to, to do by hand and we still need to, to build, um, Automation solutions, um, similar to what Autonma Automata, uh, automata um, provides, but um, but yeah, we we tried to look at this um, as this mathematical data-driven optimization problem, which allows us to reduce the size of the the search space massively. Mm-hmm.
1: And Peter touched on it before. I mean, rather than focus on um, what technologies and models can be exported from pharma, for instance, should technology be brought in from other sectors, brewing, textiles? food ingredients industries as, as their process through and manufacturing costs are closer to what's needed uh, for this market? I guess, uh, Ed, you can carry on there if you want.
4: Yeah, happy to. Um, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, and maybe this this contrast slightly worked. what Oric was saying earlier on, kind of looking towards the pharmaceutical industry to um, think about how we scale up the process. Um, I don't think that's the right industry to be looking towards, although they've been doing a huge amount of of cell culture. The scales that are reached in, in pharma and the costs that are reached in pharma are completely different from food. So um we need to look to, to other industries like like brewing, um, to think about the the way that we do our manufacturing. Um, but also um, similar to to what Peter and the team at Maester are clearly doing, we need to um Look to other industries to um, to find food grade components for our media, rather than um, as you mentioned earlier, Nick, um, using kind of very um, purified um, components for, for media. Um, we need to look towards these these food grade components, um, which are still safe for us to use in cell culture, still allow us to to reach the same um, same production um, densities and, and volumes and everything, but um, do so at a much lower cost. Yeah. Or would you agree?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And in Israel, uh, we are a stakeholder of food uh, are within a consortium about uh, cultivated meat and a lot of uh, Israeli companies are involved in this process. Uh, Israeli companies that are trying uh, to find a solution uh, with a recombinant uh, uh, protein and growth factors uh, using uh, uh, microbes or plants uh, for expression system uh, and uh, also looking at the uh, Protein and so Factor with plant-based alternative. So we are really partnership uh, to uh, all together uh, to
1: decrease uh, uh, the the cost. as uh, leads on to this um, next. Is there a need for more collaboration um, between cultured meat companies um, and researchers, which might potentially decrease the time necessary to reach industrial-scale production? I mean, are you quite a closely knit community, Peter?
5: Yes, we are, we are, um, in a way I'm, I'm, and this is more personally, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit sorry that the, the, you know, private money so much came in, in such an early stage. I would have liked the whole field to be, to have been more open source in this, in this early stage, more academic and to, to have the competitiveness, uh, kick in at a later stage. But, uh, that said, yes, well, in Europe, for instance, we have sellag Europe, uh, uh, yeah. A group of by now, I think 15 or 16 companies in Europe where we align on regulation and, and stuff like labeling, promotional activities, uh, government contacts, et cetera, through this, through this association. That's good. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, as, as far as IP is concerned, at most of it, we're trying to find a balance between either publishing it, which we also do, uh, sometimes and, and keeping it indoors. I mean, the reality is that, that we and others are funded with private money and yeah, that that's that does close doors and windows a little bit. Um that's the way it is. Uh-huh.
1: Um collaboration or it? Do you think there's uh-huh. enough of it in the sector at the moment?
3: Yes. Uh we have some collaboration all over the world and the same. We need uh to protect uh, <laughs> your IPs but my, by making collaboration and uh, at Stakeholder Food we are really open uh, with collaboration. Uh, I think all together uh, we need we can uh, uh improve the uh all of the market uh cost and uh, and be uh just earlier in the market and get uh, uh, regulatory approval. Um we
1: have got lots and lots of questions in here. Um this one is for from Nikeshkiavo. Um during scaling up, is it really possible to maintain sterility? Or do you do you foresee using antibiotics at any stage of the process? I guess that's a, that's a relevant question.
4: Yeah, um, I can I can answer that one. Um, excellent, Go on ahead. I, I, I'd be I'd be surprised if any company in the in the industry is talking about using antibiotics at, at scale. Um, ultimately, that's that's a. Um, Antibiotics are used in the traditional meat industry and we're all um, trying to move away from using antibiotics. Um, we don't use antibiotics in any of our um, production at the moment um, or in our r and um, I think that the same will be true of, of most companies in in the space and, and that can still be done at a very large scale. Um, it's it's a challenge. Um, there are lots of challenges that, that we're facing in this industry um, and keeping the environment sterile enough uh, for um sterility and um, cell culture at very, very large scale is, is one of those challenges, but it's definitely not one that's insurmountable.
1: Yeah. Do either Peter or Oritz have anything to add to that?
5: No, I totally agree. Well, <laughs> perfect. Perfect.
1: Um, there's another question there, actually, it seems pretty uh, relevant. Do you think cell ag products could receive EU common agricultural policy subsidies in the next 10 years as well? Um, would that have a significant impact to reach <clears throat> cost parity? Peter, I guess your best place to answer that one.
5: Well, either that or removing the, the, the existing subsidies from the traditional sector would, would, would actually have an impact. Yeah, yeah, it, it would. I, to be honest, I haven't given this that much thought, but um, I, it, more generically, I would like governments to be more supportive than they are today in general. Although the Dutch government recently Allocated 60 million towards stimulating uh, the field, so I shouldn't be uh, too critical. But uh, in in general, given the impact this the the development of this field might have on the planet, not to be too pathetic here, but I I would I would indeed like to see more involvement. For instance, this way um, come from uh, from governments. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's
1: a topic that we're not going to touch on today. It's the, the lobbyists in the meat sector. I mean, it, we would need a couple of hours to discuss that on its own. Um, so I, I'm going to move on to some more general um, topics now. Ultimately, we're talking about developing more sustainable food products in the conventional food industry. Uh, and that means everything involved from lab to fork has to be sustainable. How mindful should we be um, of the possibility that we could see a situation in which uh, we have an economically viable cultured meat sector that does not deliver all of the more altruistic or social and environmental benefits currently associated with the technology, um, net reduction in GHGs, gains in health or energy usage. Is, is that a danger,
4: Ed, do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a risk and it's something we should be mindful of for, for sure. Um, I think most people who end up in this industry um, are, are in this industry of thinking about all of the the potential that it has to um ultimately provide a, a much more sustainable way of um producing producing meat producing food um, so we we should always have in our minds whether we're actually um moving towards that goal of it or if we're moving away from it um, so so companies should um focus on that um, and when we're, we're in, in production and producing um, products that end up on on supermarket shelves, we we should be held accountable um, against the the emissions that that we end up producing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or it's I mean it's not good enough that we're producing um, products that aren't harmful to animals. We we need to make sure we're producing products that aren't harmful to the planet as well.
3: Yes, exactly. So uh, we we I think everybody uh, wants to uh, preserve our uh, ecosystems, uh, keeping our food and uh, uh, safe uh, with all the nutritional value, uh, secure, uh, fresh water secure, and protecting the welfare of animals. Uh, this is the point of uh, uh, the, uh, uh, all the uh, uh, meat, uh, cultivated meat uh, companies. Uh, and uh, I think we all are a game player in this system and uh, we really need to uh, take care of the of the
1: earth. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple of more questions out. But is there an image problem for cultured meats? Um, and it's an early stage industry. The language to describe it is evolving all the time. It's cultured meat, cultivated meat, cell-based meat, clean meat, cell ag, lab-grown meat, as well as slaughter-free meat and ethically grown meat to a lesser extent. Um, do you think we need to come up with a sort of standard more palatable branding for these alternatives to
5: succeed, Peter. I, I don't have the impression that that's our biggest problem today. To be honest, I mean, mm-hmm. indeed, the, the, the product has gone has gone through through multiple names for multiple reasons. Um, I mean, some level of harmonization would be helpful, but I I don't think it's critical at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe an association like Cell Europe that I mentioned before can or, or probably will be helpful here in in aligning a little bit more but ultimately it's about it's about the product that's the
4: that's going to be the hero yeah ed yeah i agree that the good food institute have, have done a little bit of research on this and um and have proposed cultivated as kind of a, a word that we settled around but but similar to, to peter um fundamentally i think that there are there are other challenges that that we're all focused on we, we need to get these these products to market and we need to do that at a price point that that makes sense for consumers and then frankly um whenever it's called i think we'll be in, a, in an awesome position yeah i just might end up appearing on
1: shelves without any labeling anyway so who knows what we'll be eating okay so i'm going to come to each of you now with just some sort of final thoughts some takeaways from um, the discussion we've had today um jeff i'll probably come to you last um ed do you just want to sort of sum
4: things up in a few sentences? Yeah. I, I think it's it's been great to to chat to um really a, a bunch of amazing people in in the field, um, all pushing together to to try to make this industry a reality. I think um this kind of um panel talking about actually getting from where a lot of companies have been over the last few years in in R and D to, to actually scaling up this process, getting it to market is it's super exciting, and following on from there, um, the, uh, the FDA upside announcement. I think it's it's great to be able to have more and more
1: panels like this. Yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting to follow it. Peter, any final thoughts?
5: No, not not that much to, to to add. I think we're it's it's clear we're pretty aligned um, in where the issues are, uh, what what the priorities should be, and 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 where it's headed. Uh, so it's good to, it's good to to see that, and I couldn't agree more with the relevance stating the relevance of, of the uh, the FDA uh well approval yeah no. all right
3: yeah i'm uh, happy to see that uh, everybody uh uh are on the same boat both and uh, we are uh, looking for solutions together uh it's really great and uh, then we will we can move forward and uh, succeed uh, to give to the customer uh cultivated meat
1: yeah um and jeff before so any questions in here i haven't got time to to go um through all of them unfortunately but um, um the basis of this uh panel discussion today will will be a, an article uh, in the next issue of protein production technology international so i'll see if we can weave some of these questions into that to that article um jeff to you for final thoughts
2: oh, i mean it's uh it's it... It's a real pleasure and a privilege to be associated with with this industry i mean it, it's extraordinary the level of enthusiasm and technical and technological accomplishment is is remarkable. It feels like every time you know almost every month the limit of what is possible keeps getting further away um and I think everything that has been considered to be you know a problem and a limitation it feels like there's a solution we may not know what it is today, but I can't help feeling that it's going to be fixed um, and things will move at an extraordinary pace. So yeah. yeah, thank you everyone.
1: It's certainly going to be exciting to cover it. That's uh, all we've got time for today. I would like to thank our panelists, uh, Jeff, Peter, Orit, and Ed for sparing some time out with their busy schedules to participate uh, and also to Automata for sponsoring today's discussion. Uh, it's certainly been a lot of food for thoughts. Um, As I said before, what you have heard today will be turned into an article for the January-February edition of Protein Production Technology International, that's a bit of a mouthful that title, which will be published on the 25th of January 2023. Um, If any of our viewers today would like to be involved in that feature, do please get in touch with me via LinkedIn. Um, And that particular edition uh, of the magazine will of course be the preview edition for the Future of Protein Production Summit, which takes place on the 21st. 22nd and 23rd of February, 2023. That's online um, at which we're gonna have more than 80 speakers, numerous panel discussions uh, and some exciting startup pitch symposiums and more. We look forward to seeing you there. Um, If there are any questions we didn't get to, um, we'll be sure sure to forward them on to our guests today uh, and hopefully they can get back to you via email. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard today. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.